Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 176, Gregory the Ninth. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Today's Pope was born Ugolino, a member of the family of the Conti di Segni. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we just met his great uncle, the famous Innocent III. He was born in 1170 in Agnani in central Italy, the same town that his famous uncle was from. He grew up a member of a noble family, so he was well-educated and well-read, and he became a member of the clergy at an early age. He studied both at the University of Paris and perhaps in Bologna as well before entering fully into church service. In 1198, his great-uncle made him the Cardinal Deacon of San Eustachio and then the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia in 1206. As Cardinal, he was trusted with attempting to broker peace between rival Holy Roman Emperor claimants and rival northern Italian city-states. While in northern Italy, Ugolino met St. Francis, and they became fast friends. St. Francis said he was not merely a Cardinal, but, quote, one who far outshone the rest in virtuous behavior and holiness of life. Ugolino admired and esteemed St. Francis on his part and was inspired by his holiness of life and radical following of the gospel. Ugolino was asked by the Pope while in northern Italy to help run and protect the houses of the poor clares founded by St. Clare of Assisi. When St. Francis came to Rome, Ugolino helped organize and guide St. Francis through the Roman Curia. And then when St. Francis appealed to Pope Honorius to help guide and protect their young order, he requested that Cardinal Ugolino be appointed to that role. This happened in 1223, as the Franciscans were officially recognized by Pope Honorius. Cardinal Ugolino helped temper the ideas of St. Francis to enable the Franciscan order to flourish not merely as a charismatic endeavor, but as a true religious order. Now, sometimes the ideals of the founder need a little tempering and a little more prudence. And if there's one thing the church is good at, it's prudence in this regard. Now, this did lead to some strife amongst the Franciscans, and down the road we'll see that the branch that wanted an even more radical poverty broke off from the mainstream of Franciscan thought, and they became known as the Fraticelli, or the spiritual Franciscans, and we will talk about them later on. Ugolino, however, was not merely the friend of St. Francis and St. Clair. He also befriended St. Dominic, and he worked behind the scenes to have the Order of Preachers approved by Pope Honorius. When St. Dominic died, it was Ugolino who celebrated the funeral and burial at Bologna, where you can still visit St. Dominic's tomb today. In 1227, when Pope Honorius III died, the cardinals turned to Ugolino and urged him to accept. In his humility, he declined, but after enough pressure, he finally accepted election on March 19, 1227, and he took the name Gregory IX. Now, if you remember from the last episode, Honorius III had been trying to get Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, to go on crusade. Frederick had made a vow to do so when he was crowned King of Germany and again when he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor. And he and Honorius had gone back and forth with the Pope reminding him of his promise and ordering him to go and Frederick making excuses and more excuses. So now with three days after his installation as Pope, Gregory IX wrote to Frederick to get a move on, get going. And Frederick did. He got on his boat and was sailing away to the Holy Land when all of a sudden he turned back. He appeared again on shore saying that he was sick, as was one of his chief nobles, and that the whole thing would have to be delayed. And a large number of soldiers, however, had made it all the way to the Holy Land. But when they found out that Frederick wasn't there, they had to come all the way back again. 
They were furious both at the Pope and the Emperor for making them look like fools. And the Pope was furious too. He publicly excommunicated Frederick II on September 29, 1227. Frederick basically ignored it and pretended like he would be going on crusade the next year. The Pope tried to get him to apologize both to the church and the crusaders, but he refused. And then he wrote several letters slamming the church, saying that the church had raised him like an evil stepmother and had not given him his inheritance, but instead put Otto IV on the throne. He washed his hands of the whole thing and instead of apologizing, tried to stir up the people against the Pope. He paid off a number of sympathetic nobles to be on his side, and they protested against the Pope during Mass on Easter Monday in 1228. The situation got dicey enough that Gregory was forced to leave Rome and move to Perugia. Now, if you remember, factions were starting to develop in Italy, the pro-imperial faction called the Ghibellines and the pro-papal, the Guelphs. And this is one of the ways in which the Ghibelline faction began to grow. But we need to make a brief pit stop in that conflict for a little good news. In 1228, Gregory IX formally canonized his friend St. Francis of Assisi just two years after St. Francis died in 1226. Pope Gregory commissioned Brother Thomas of Celano, one of St. Francis's first followers, to write the first biography of St. Francis. And Brother Thomas also wrote some early liturgical hymns for St. Francis's feast day, and Pope Gregory joined in and wrote some himself. And we shouldn't forget, with all the political back and forth between the emperor and the pope, that the real work of the papacy is in the spiritual realm, and that Gregory's love and support of the new mendicant orders like the Franciscans, the Carmelites, and the Dominicans were really bearing fruit in the church. But with that nice pit stop over, we have to go back to conflict. In 1228, Frederick finally set sail for the Holy Land, but not to liberate it on a crusade, to negotiate with the Sultan. He met with the Sultan in charge of the area and agreed to a treaty whereby the Christian holy sites would be given to Frederick and the remaining area would remain under Muslim control. And Frederick also promised to never help any Christian army coming to Jerusalem. Frederick went to Jerusalem and had himself crowned King of Jerusalem and then, leaving confusion in his wake, he left. He was nominally king of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was technically under Christian control, but not really, and everyone knew it. The crusading orders of knights, the hospitallers, and the templars knew this was just self-aggrandizement, and they were not happy. Meanwhile, while Frederick was in Jerusalem, one of his nobles in Sicily had raised an army and was invading papal territory on the emperor's orders. The pope had to raise an army and repulse the emperor's forces, but when Frederick heard about how things were going, he sailed to Sicily and lined up against the pope. Very soon, however, he sought a negotiated peace rather than full-out battle. Several German princes, who really didn't like this conflict between the empire and the church, went as a go-between, and in 1230, when the Pope returned to Rome, negotiations began. After several months of negotiations, Friedrich agreed to a peace, and his excommunication was lifted by Pope Gregory. Now, the next five or so years were relatively peaceful between the Pope and the emperor, but the seeds of future conflicts were being sown. The emperor wanted to make his control over the empire more absolute, stripping away local privileges and autonomy and imposing direct imperial control. That's going to be trouble, especially in northern Italy, where the city-states of Lombardy have been used to independence in all but name from the empire. But before we get there, we have to talk about how Gregory used this period of peace. He was not only a great statesman, but a learned man as well, and we have two big things of note on that front. The first is that Gregory promoted the use of the philosopher Aristotle in the universities. Aristotle had been banned in 1210 in Paris, partially because his works came to the West through bad translations and bad interpolations from the Arabic and were impregnated with some of the philosophy of the Arabic schools. The Pope commissioned William of Auvergne to undertake a restoration of Aristotle and new translations. And this project went forward and would pay dividends when the great scholastic thoughts 
of St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Albert the Great, and St. Bonaventure show up in a couple as episodes. But more importantly, Gregory commissioned a study of the canon law of the church. Canon law was not just in one book as it is today. It was found in books and laws handed down by various popes over centuries and collected by different scholars. So Pope Gregory commissioned St. Raymond of Penafort, who was his confessor and private chaplain and a Dominican legal scholar, to collect all the canon law he could find and publish them in one set, the Decretals. The Decretals, promulgated in 1234 with the bull Rex Pacificus, became the mainstay of canon law for centuries and consolidated all canon law into one place. St. Raymond is, of course, now known as the patron saint of canon lawyers, and Gregory is one of two popes featured among sculptures of great lawmakers in the U.S. House of Representatives today. But now, once more, we have to go back to the conflict with Frederick II. The spark for renewing the fight with the emperor came with the protest of the Lombard League against the attempt by Frederick to bring their cities more under his direct control. The Pope tried to mediate between the two, but Frederick spurned him and announced that not only would he bring Lombardy under his control, but the papal states as well. So the Pope excommunicated the emperor again in 1239. Gregory tried to undermine the emperor by urging the German bishops and princes to pick a new emperor, but Frederick was on a roll and they wouldn't go against him. He gathered his army and marched towards Rome. The Pope tried to call a general council in Rome in 1241 to settle the issue, but Frederick wouldn't let any of his bishops attend. He sent a fleet of ships with orders to capture, sink, or kill any of the bishops' ships they found. Only five ships escaped. Several of the prelates on the ships, including two cardinals, Frederick kept in prison to use as bargaining chips against the Pope. Frederick also sought to undermine the Pope by trying to recruit the cardinals and the people to turn against him. According to Horace Mann, translating scholars of the time, he went so far as to write a poem mocking the Pope and had one of his people secretly hang it up in the Pope's bedroom. The poem read, The stars and fates, the flight of birds decree, of all the world one hammer there shall be. Rome totters, though a mass of errors led, and of the world shall cease to be the head. And the story goes that Gregor responded, Scripture and fame, your sins all loudly tell, your life but short, and then forever hell. When no German princes would turn against Frederick, Gregory sent a French cardinal, James Pecoria, to the king of France, offering him the title Holy Roman Emperor. The French didn't want to get involved. Frederick then continued to march on Rome, and on August of 1241, he surrounded the city, but he could not capture it. Pope Gregory appointed a senator named Matteo Rosso Orsini, and he was a good military commander and had been able to halt Frederick's forces, but Frederick attacked the country around Rome and even captured a castle containing a lot of the Pope's relatives whom he hanged. With all this going on, the Pope himself was overwhelmed, and he died on October 22, 1241. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica near the tomb of St. Gregory the Great, and he was succeeded by Pope Celestine IV, whom we will talk about next time. Thanks for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.